Is Mike Cleveland Welcome hanging everybody to Inside Boxing Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Goodpaster, with my normal co-host, John Raspani, but tonight he's going to be a guest. We're going to talk about the book he wrote with Jerry Fitch, and the name of that book is A Few More Rounds. So let's welcome John to the show. How you doing, John? Hi, Mike. I'm doing great. Wonderful to be on here with Jerry. This is about the only time we ever really get to see that we actually have faces, right, Jerry? And That's right. So, Such nice as it is, yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see him. We talk every day, so it's nice to see him over there uh, in Cleveland doing his Cleveland-type deal. So, yeah, this is a thrill. Yeah, I'm worried a little bit about the Cleveland thing. I'm afraid he might be a Browns fan, but help me welcome <laughs> to the show, Cleveland boxing historian and author Jerry Fitch. How you doing, Jerry? I'm doing fine, thanks. Um, it, it's hard to be a it's hard to be it's hard to be a Browns fan. There we go. I had I'm rescued. There we go. Blinded anymore. There you go. We got the hat <laughs> club going on on the Inside Boxing <laughs> Weekly Show. It's like an um, inside football show. <laughs> yeah, it's an inside football, inside hat show. We can do a hat show from now on. But we're going to talk about you guys' book a few more rounds. Both of you have written multiple books in the past. How did you guys meet? And we'll start that with Jerry. How did you guys meet? And then maybe, John, you can elaborate a little bit on the idea, how the idea to combine your work came up. I, um, I think I first came in contact with John probably 10, 12 years ago, um, uh, one of his boxing sites. Uh, I also believe somebody had mentioned his name, but uh, it all started really uh, when I came out with my Jimmy Bivens book in 2011. Um, I don't know if I asked John or if he asked me if, you know, if wanted to review it. And so he did. That kind of started the ball rolling. And we've basically been in touch all this while, uh, uh, reviewing each other's books and, and talking boxing. And found we had a lot of similarities, even though he's, you know, quite a bit younger than me. <laughs> although, nice to hear once although, th although, although this week he's older than me, <laughs> his poor back. Oh, my God. But anyhow, uh, that's how it kind of started. We had a lot of similarities as far as, you know, uh, uh our likes and dislikes and of course the history of boxing you know even though J john is younger he you know the stories he told about uh his father and chicago and all that you know it, it really clicked with me you know all right so how did the idea come up john to collaborate and come up with this book i think we were and jerry can correct me here i think he remembers better i think we were just talking on facebook and he said something about maybe being interested in doing something uh, with a co-author and I was the one on the other end. So I, I, I probably got this wrong, but I think I said something like, Oh really? Are, are, do you really want to do this? And, and, and I didn't expect him to say, yeah, I do. Well, he, I had never, yeah, I had never done, I had never done, uh, you know, I had never collaborated with anybody before I mean, other than them helping me uh, with research and that. And of course I knew John had, you know, had a very successful co-authoring experience. So, uh, it was the beginning, you know, it was the beginning of the pandemic, really. I mean, it was only like a month into the pandemic. It was like April of 2020 when we started really talking about it. I think he thought I was kind of pulling his leg or something, but it just kind of clicked, you know, and uh, I'm glad it did. Yeah. All right. So Nigel Collins, John was the guy who wrote the forward to the book. You want to talk a little bit about you guys' relationship there? 
Sure. Uh, Nigel was somebody that I knew from years ago when I used to call him when he was the editor of the Ring Magazine. And I was trying to get one of my stories on the Ring Magazine. Uh, I never did, but he was very nice about it. So <laughs> that was good. But I, I always thought Nigel was a very fair guy, a very uh, uh, level guy. Uh, um, obviously knows boxing really well and he, he writes well. So I certainly had a lot of respect for him. And in, in, in boxing circles, his name is somewhat known. I mean, we were kicking around ideas. Uh, at least I was thinking about Carlos Palomino or somebody that I've gotten to be somewhat friends with over the years, Armando or somebody I'm underneath. But Nigel seemed right since he was the editor of The Ring and he's got some books also that he wrote. And it just felt to go, uh, felt right to go with him. And I asked him, he, and I told Jerry, and he goes, oh, all right. And I asked him, and within five minutes, he said, yes, love to do it. All right, the book, it starts off one of my favorite chapters, Jerry, and that was talking about you meeting Tony Zale, his wife, Philomena, who actually played in the All-American Women's Professional Baseball League, yeah. movie, A League of Their Own. You want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Tony Zale? Well, as I discuss in the chapter on him, you know, it was a, a chance meeting. I mean, I was obviously very familiar with Tony Zale and his legacy being of my age. You know, I started following boxing after he was retired, but uh, it was still very clear in everybody's mind about those golden fights with Graciano and, and his career. So uh, I had, I knew he was going to, I was going to Washington, D.C. Uh, on a mission for a, a guy here in Cleveland who was trying to sell a scoring. Uh, uh, he had developed a scoring system called Soctron where three judges would be in a soundproof booth with headsets on and pushing buttons. And that's, that's the main reason I was going there. And I knew Tony Zale was going to be there. And I knew Jersey Joe Walcott was going to be there. And I knew um, Ike Williams was going to be there, but I didn't really think ahead of time that, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to possibly meet him and, and say hello, but uh, I didn't know how much time I was going to have. I had to show a film and give a talk, and I didn't know much. It was going to be a boxing league where cities had boxing teams and they would compete against other cities like other professional sports. Never got off the ground, but it turned out as I got to the uh, – the, a real old classic uh, hotel in D.C. It was, uh, it was the um, – no, the Taft was in New York. The Mayflower. I don't even know if it's there anymore. It probably got knocked down, but it was one of these old classic ones. And I was going in to check in, and I looked next to me, and here's Tony and Philomena. And we got talking, and, you know, of course, you say, oh, I hope to talk to you later. And yeah, that'd be great. You know, well, you don't know if that's going to happen. Well, they had a, uh, like, a cocktail hour the first night, and that was just, <laughs> that was amazing because, uh I got to talk to the, all three of the fighters, but Tony especially, it was like um, just amazing how friendly he was. And uh, of course, Philomena, she was, <laughs> no offense, John, but she was one of these loudmouth Italians, <laughs> uh, but but a good person. What a good person. It was, you know, Tony's second marriage and she really looked out for him and, and, and she really was a great gal. Uh, and so, you know, we did the usual conversations about fighters and fights and, and uh, posing for pictures and whatever, which was kind of cool because he just jumped right in and kind of scared me a little bit because he, he launched a right hand right into my face, you know, and of course he didn't hit me, but he stopped short. And that I use that photo all the time. It's like, you know, but uh, 
we said, let's keep in touch. And, uh, you know, you always say that to people. You, you meet people and uh, you might go on a vacation and meet people. Yeah, and, you say that to family members and never talk oh, to Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's keep in touch. I haven't seen, you know, and then, you know, 10 years go by, you haven't even talked to them once. But in their case, it was different because that was 1974. And we did keep in touch for a number of years. And uh, I did run into them, I think, one other time. Uh, between that and 1979, I ran into him out in L.A. at the uh, Cauliflower Alley Club, which was kind of a cool venue. It was a weekly meeting of every Tom, Dick, and Harry that ever did anything, either in movies, wrestling, or boxing, that lived in Southern California that was available. Uh, I mean, it would last for hours because they would uh, – Lou Nova was the vice president. Mike Mazurki, the, the actor and former wrestler, was the president. and They would introduce – everybody that was breathing that was in the room you know i mean uh you know they introduced me of course and nobody knew who i was at that time and uh, unless they had read a couple articles I, a couple features in ring magazine and then uh, they would do all kinds of silly stuff too i mean uh, billy Barty, the uh the uh actor you know a, a little person as we would call him now they'd ask everybody to stand up if they were in the back of the room and of course billy stood up and so one of them said hey listen some smart asses Hey, stand up! We can't see you. <laughs> Jeez, and he took it. He took it in good stride. But anyhow, as time went on, I got involved with the uh, the former Rochester Boxing Association, which have, uh, morphed into the Rochester Boxing Hall of Fame. In 1978, they started holding dinners, and I had I knew a few people up that way, and they invited me. And the first year. Uh, they had Carmen Basilio as their featured guest amongst some local other fighters, but um, they started asking me, you know, I, by that time I had met several fighters. In fact, uh, I was very fortunate. I had, you know, incidents where I met multiple famous fighters. Like, for example, 1964, I'm just 17 years old, and I go down to the Cleveland Arena to watch Joey Giardello and Rocky Rivero fight, and at they fought two fights, one in April, or uh, yeah, one in April, one in May of '64. And at those two fights, I personally met. I mean, I mean, when I say personally met, beyond autographs, I got to spend some time and talk with them, and some of them friendships evolved from it. Uh, I met Joe Lewis for the first time, Jersey Joe Walcott for the first time, Ezra Charles for the first and only time, Rocky Marciano for the first time, Rocky Graciano, and Jimmy Bivens, and uh, Joey Giardello. So they knew I had uh, in Rochester that I had um, met quite a few famous fighters and was keeping in touch with them. Uh, so they said for the 1979 dinner, could I line up some famous fighters? They wanted to honor their own in upstate New York, but they wanted to bring in, you know, famous fighters and champions from outside the area. So I was fortunate. Jimmy Bivens, I had had quite a relationship with him by then from 1964, really from 69 on. So he was an easy one to, to get. But I got in touch with Philomena Zale and said, would you and Tony like to come to Rochester? Um, they want to honor you. And, you know, the flight will be covered in, the, in you know, the, the room and whatever. So they, they grabbed onto it right away. And... Uh, in Rochester, uh, upstate New York, anyone that knows anything about there, uh, wintertime can be something else. You know, they had their first dinner in February, 
of 78 and you know it was pretty nasty so they said hey, let's move it to april next year so i always drove up there it's like a four and a half hour drive from cleveland well that particular year that zale and bivens are being honored i think it was april 7th but anyhow, early april i started driving up there and as i got i got through pa and as i got closer to new york a blizzard hit i mean it hit when I got to the border of the New York State, they had uh, a National Guard out rerouting us. So my my trip to Rochester took, instead of four and a half hours, took like closer to six. Well, the Zales flight couldn't land there. So they flew into somewhere. I don't know if they flew into LaGuardia or where in New York, but they flew in. Long story short, they had to take a car they got there. But that just expanded things for, for uh, my relationship with them. Uh, they had such a wonderful time, and I got to spend a lot of quality time with them talking. Uh, and we just kept in touch for years. I mean, uh, Philomena would call me up and say, hey, uh, did you hear about the, what they did to President Bush's, you know, honoring Tony? And, or you hear about this, and Tony's doing and back and forth and back and forth. And then one day, she... Uh, called me and said, oh, no, I called them because I had heard a weird rumor that Tony had died. And, uh, God, I felt bad, but I, I wanted to make sure because it was a, a guy died in Arizona. So I called Philomena and, uh, hi, Jerry. And I said, uh, is Tony there? Well, he's sleeping right now. Uh, by the way, did you hear he died? I go, what? And she starts laughing. Some drunk, some alcoholic who must have had some kind of resemblance to, to Tony. Tony was never a drinker, ever, ever. I mean, that's he he was so proud of how what great shape physically he stayed in. I mean, he was like solid as a rock when he was, you know, getting older. So it turned out there was some drunk. And, and um, fortunately, the paper, whatever the Arizona paper was in that area, called her. And she, as I put in the book, she said, uh, well, if Tony's down there, who's this guy sleeping next to me <laughs> or something like that? You know? So anyhow, we, we, we kept in touch for years. And I, I contacted the uh, one of our writers at the Plain Dealer, Bob Dogan, and he wrote, did a nice feature on that about the, the, the phony Tony Zale. But that's how it all started, a, a chance meeting in, in, um, in D.C. And they were they were just great people as far as staying in touch. I mean, you, you felt like you knew them. You know, it wasn't like. Okay, I don't even know if I, I don't even know if I told him right off the bat I was a boxing writer or whatever. But you know, then I did, I did some features on him in magazines. I did one. Uh, there was a really nice magazine that didn't last very long called World Champion. Uh, Lou Eskin, who used to be the editor at at, at Boxing Illustrated, um, started it, and he had I don't know if Nigel Collins was in there, but there was quite a few. I I remember Nigel from a couple magazines I wrote for, uh, the late. K.O.J.O. Jack Obermeyer, who had probably attended more fights than anybody in the United States. He was part of the team and some others. Uh, I did a feature on Tony uh, in that magazine and, and a couple others. But uh, it was a lasting friendship. So I got to thinking about all the books I've written in, the, in my book, 50 Years of Fights, Fighters, and Friendships. I talk about a lot of fighters I met, more in little blurps here and there in casual things and i had never done a feature on on um tony so when i asked john i says 
what do you think about that? So he said, that's a great idea. Um, and uh, when I sent it to him, he said, you know, uh, I want this to be the first chapter. So, of course, Tony and Philomena have been dead for a long time now. Uh, but uh, Tony's nephew, Ted Zale, whose real name is Tad, but, uh, uh, Tad, Thad, but he goes by Ted. Uh, he and uh, uh, Clay Moyle did a beautiful book on Tony Zale, Tony Zale, the Man of Steel. Uh, I submitted a few photos for them, but uh, the one that was the most thrilled was uh, Tony's great niece, Haley Zale, who as John would say, and I don't think this is not you know off color here, is very easy on the eyes, <laughs> but she's also very involved in boxing. She, she's Green. an amateur judge in New York, and uh, she has been campaigning for years to get these knuckleheads in Canastoga to get their heads out of their rear ends. Those belts that were stolen, Tony's and Carmen Basilio's, they, they did not cooperate whatsoever, and it's really bizarre to this day that somebody was able to go in there and just pick out those belts, uh, six of them all together, four for Basilio and two for Zale, if I recall. Uh, and there's been no trace of it. And uh, when the Zales went zooming up there from, they live in Indiana. Uh, no, I'm sorry, they live in Michigan. They went zooming up to Canastoga and they got no cooperation at all from from Brophy and the group up there. And, and that, it's been that way since this day. There's been all kinds of uh, money offered. And, you know, even Mike Tyson got involved. And, you know, but it, it's that thing. But Tony Zale um, certainly is one guy. Uh, where I grew up uh, outside of Parma, most of my early life, had a uh, fairly large Polish population. Because that was back in the days when all these stupid Polish jokes were coming out, you know, and, you know, how many Polacks did it take to screw in a light bulb? You know, all this stupid stuff. And uh, I get to thinking about that. But boy, if there was one in this earth that I would never have cracked a stupid Polish joke, it would have been Tony. And he was so proud. He belonged to every organization. He was honored, in, you know, by groups in Chicago and Detroit. Great guy and a heck of a fighter. All right, guys, real quick, I want to bring up to you to your top sportsbook comparison site. It's betting.net, which offers extensive reviews for the best sportsbook and casinos out there. Make sure you check them out at betting.net. All right, John, I would like to say that I did notice that Jerry, I don't know if you noticed this, halfway through what he was talking about, threw a little dig in there that he had some stuff that Ring Magazine actually put into their magazine. I heard that. So I, I didn't I know if that. that bothered you or not. I was hoping you wouldn't hang up. But <laughs> I, I want to talk yeah. to you. I, I mean, we've known each other for probably four or five years now. And the thing that really stood out to me was the way we both started following boxing was really because of our fathers, I think. And I know that you tell a story in one of, in one of the articles in the book about your dad and Joe Lewis, and then about a later incident when you were a young man in 1967, I believe it was, and some guys that were, for lack of a better term, racist, talking to you about Muhammad Ali. You want to discuss that a little bit? Sure. Uh, my dad first and Joe Lewis. Yeah, my dad, you know, was from Chicago, and he 
it was funny how similar in a sense it was because he liked Joe Lewis immediately and he's living in Chicago in an Italian neighborhood. Not a lot of fans of Joe Lewis. <laughs> and this is in the 1930s. So he, he just liked Joe immediately and he fought in Chicago a, a number of times. My dad's just a little tiny little boy then when he first, I think he first fought there in 1935 and my dad's like eight. But the, the, the story you're referring to, I think, is when my dad went had to see Joe Lewis fight Jim, James J. Broddick, the Cinderella man, 1937. And my dad lived about six blocks from Comiskey Park. He used to go there all the time. He was already selling newspapers. He already had his first job. And he saw some of the baseball legends. We should go there. But, I mean, he I mean, he would tell me about it. I saw Lou Gehrig, and I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so he's got his little job there. But he, he wants to see Joe Lewis. He's convinced Joe Lewis is going to win the heavyweight title. So he goes there in the evening, different time, obviously. He just goes over to Kaminsky Park and tries to figure out how to get in, which is going to be dicey. He has no ticket. He, I think he said he had, like, a penny in his pocket. That was, that was a lot of money for him. And uh, he, he, he maneuvers a way to get in. He gets caught by the security guard or the, actually the policeman who says, uh, what are you? And my dad says, I, I want to see Joe Lewis and fight James J. Brodick. And they actually let him in with one older, not Irish, not that I know, but policeman let my dad in. And he went up the aisle and stood there and watched Lewis and Brodick. And I, I'm not quite, I can't remember what round it was when he got in there, but it was later in the fight. So he saw Joe Lewis knock out James J. Brodick and win the title. And he said he just, he was just so thrilled. And then uh, fast forward to, yeah, 1967. And I just, I, Muhammad Ali was the first, it was Cassius Clay when I first saw him. And it was in one of the Ring magazines saw this young guy that I thought had his tongue firmly in his cheek making all these comments and I just loved his guts and and a lot of older people did not you know he was brash he was and he was but I, I didn't take him that seriously I just thought he was kind of a fun-loving guy who was trying to get noticed and he, he obviously was so when he decided that he was not going to go to Vietnam which of course as we know took amazing guts to do that in my neighborhood in Tulsa Oklahoma he was despised, just like a lot of people did in all over the country. And uh, this incident that you're talking about, Mike, was at a, a neighborhood a barbecue. And uh, everyone would sit out in, in the, actually in the street. We take over the whole street and, and they do a barbecue and, and uh, big, uh, big fishermen and stuff. So they were making catfish and these dads were all sitting around in a circle talking about things. And I just be ha I happened to be near them, and one of them said, "Hey, I heard you like that guy Muhammad Ali." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I do." And and then eh, we ought to be lynched, and he ought to be lynched, and all this kind of stuff. And it was terrible. I, I I had never heard anything like that. I had been fortunate that I hadn't heard. Read I read some of the ugliness in the Ring magazine, but I, it didn't it didn't hit me that hard as a as a I was nine years old then, so it was like that but what happened was is these guys are getting angry at a nine-year-old because he he has the gall to like this fighter who's black and black and not going to serve in the war and uh as they're getting louder and i'm leaving some of it so hopefully someone will buy the book and read what happens but as they're getting louder i feel these hands on my shoulders and it's my dad 
you know, and, and he was big to me in those days. He was six feet, but I, I looked up at him and he said to those guys who had been saying, um, oh, you, you shouldn't like him. He had to be lynched, blah, blah, blah. And my, and my dad just looked at him and he said, my son has a right to like whoever he wants. And I remember thinking, I had heard that my dad was a pretty tough street guy when he was in Chicago in the, in the 1940s. And I just looked at him, he looked like Clark Kent. You know, he had glasses on and he wore a suit to work all the time. So I didn't associate the two. He gave those guys a look that I, I literally was looking up at him like this and he just stared. And there was five of them. He just, and they didn't move. They just looked at him. They didn't necessarily wilt, but there was no way they were going to say anything back. And his hands, he just kept on rubbing my shoulders. And I thought, wow. I mean, and he saved me. I mean, he came in, he swooped in, and and he was my hero anyway. So the the way he did that, the way he stood up to those losers was uh, phenomenal. And and it let me know a lot about him as a man. And and, uh, I, I was always one that did my own thing anyway, but he just, he reinforced it and said, yeah, you know, you do your own thing. It's okay. Yeah, because my experience, 1977, when Leon Spinks beat Muhammad Ali, I go to the next door neighbor's house the next day, and I thought they were good people. I played with the kids. They had twins that were brothers. We used to play basketball and everything. I was probably like eight years old. And the same thing. The dad's in there, and he looks at me, and he says, you like Ali, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm glad that N-word got his ass kicked last night. And I remember I was upset because I love Muhammad Ali. I went back and then my dad's sitting there in his chair. And I said, dad, th- this is what the next door neighbors said about Muhammad Ali. And my dad, he always smoked this pipe. He took the pipe out of me that blew the smoke out. He said, son, he said, that guy's just a dumbass. Just don't go over there anymore. <laughs> he said, it's better to know what somebody is than for somebody to hide it. And I mean, I, I remember like Muhammad Ali, my mom was a big sports fan. So was my sister, but not huge boxing fans. And the night Ali fought Holmes in 1980, there was something called On TV that we had, which you could actually get the fights because I saw that fight. I saw Leonard Hearns won, um, uh, Leonard Duran two that way. And I remember my dad had all his friends over. We watched Ali Holmes. And at the end of the fight, as the fight ended, I went in my bedroom and my sister and mom were sitting in there watching it. And they were both crying. I mean, because Muhammad Ali, I think the big thing was 1967, he was public enemy number one. You get towards the end of his career, and I think that flipped a lot, John, because people realized what he said about Vietnam was right. Exactly. And, and uh, yeah, it was it, it was amazing because he, he was so despised when I was a little kid. And, and, and when he came back after what happened and, and as, as his career went on, and I think Partly what happens, too, is with athletes, people notice that they're losing their skills a little bit. And they, people that were like this about them start to pull for them a little bit more. And then they realize that, yeah, everything he was saying and fighting for was true. And and so he, he cooled some of his rhetoric down a little bit, too, I think. And so it just came to the except with some things with Joe Frazier that we <laughs> yeah. bothered me quite a bit because Joe was Joe was top notch. No doubt about that. So but yeah, by that time. He, he, if he had left it alone, I mean, I, I, maybe this isn't right to say, but this is how I felt. He, he, he beat Spinks in the rematch. He just couldn't resist coming back. And, and my dad was right about that one. My dad said, um, he goes, are you going to get that one? And I said, no. And he goes, don't, because Larry Holmes is just 
he's too old. Muhammad's too old and he's passed. The thing that struck me about that is I think at one point Ali looked like he weighed like 217, 218. Yeah, yeah, he looked looked really good. And it was the day before the fight, and there was a preview show on. I told my dad, I said, I think he can win. And my dad looked at me and said, There's no way, son. Yeah, that's exactly. My dad wasn't always right. He told me that George Foreman was going to destroy Muhammad Ali. So I always remembered that. And we had seen George Foreman getting ready to train for that fight. And that was, oh my gosh, was that an experience? Another story for another day. But yeah, that was really one of the saddest times in in my, I have not watched uh, really any, barely any of that fight. I I don't want to see it. I haven't seen the Spinks one fight since it first happened. Um, I, I, it's so hard with somebody that you like and admire. I mean, even, I remember even Willie Mays when he was on the Mets dropping a fly ball out in center field, you know, stumbling. I mean, it's so hard to get old. And these guys are like, especially in my day. And I think your day and Jerry's day too. Mike, these guys were like gods to us, Yeah, you know, and to see them get old is, is hard and they're just human beings, but they're such superior human beings to see that it's just, it just breaks your heart. And that's what, with Muhammad Ali, it was me. I was heartbroken. Yeah, and the sad thing for boxing fans today, Jerry, is there are no more supermen, are there? No. You know, the thing is about that, what, what John's saying is 100% true, but I, you know, the, the difference is you don't want to see any of these greats or near greats embarrass themselves like he's talking about Willie Mays. You know, Willie Mays muffs a, muffs a ball or strike out on an easy pitch whatever you want to say but boxers when they have the consequences yeah, are far more, more than yeah. embarrassment exactly all right now since you are the cleveland boxing guy jerry we got to talk about to jimmy bivens because actually you know the quote in the book jimmy bivens said ask jerry fitch he knows more about me than i do you want to talk <laughs> about how that relationship came about It kind of embarrassed me because, you know, I mean, it, some people might think, well, what's wrong with him? Is he punchy? Uh, how could Jerry know more about him? But it just, you know, when you're going through a career like that and, and, and you're you're constantly fighting, I mean, you know, and you, you're, you're fighting, uh, his pro career was like 15 years and a lot of fights, 112 fights. Uh, maybe you don't, uh, you know, you're going through it. It's just like a job almost, you know, th- those guys were, some of them had jobs outside of the ring, but most of them, if they're fighting that often, they couldn't. And uh, when I met him in 64 with that group of fighters, in fact, uh, I have a picture in my latest book, The Cleveland Arena. Uh, it's a, I didn't take the picture, but it's a great picture. It's uh, Jimmy Ezra. No, I'm sorry. It's Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy Ezra Charles and Joe Lewis together in the ring uh, that day. And uh, it's it just amazing. You know, so I met him. I got his autograph. Uh got in touch with him a few times, but in 1969, he had taken over this gym on the west side of Cleveland, and uh, I started hanging out there. And, and the thing about this guy, um, you know, you hear stories. I get kind of mad sometimes when people dig up dirt after all these years about personal things. You know, if you're going to raid a fighter or you're going to, uh, you know, talk about the career and you know if you want to if you want to say something like oh you know he really uh looked lousy against so and so well that's okay and that's your opinion but when you start digging up uh 
about divorces and everything else. Uh, oh, he was a he was a arrogant sob. Well, was or not, he might have been when he was younger. I mean, just came to uh, his when he first realized he knew how to fight. In fact, he was a very good student in high school, and uh, some of the other classmates used to ask him for answers to test, and he'd give them the wrong answer. And of course, then one guy who had had some amateur fights went chasing him down the street. Well, first he didn't catch him because uh, Jimmy was a distance runner uh, in high school at Glenville High School. But eventually he had to stand his ground and he beat the living tar out of this guy, you know. And then uh, Jesse Owens, of all people, I did a, a feature in Ring Magazine and I think it was 1973 or four, somewhere around there. And, it, and the way they titled it was uh, Jesse Owens Persuaded Jimmy Bivens to Become a Fighter. Well, Jimmy said what what uh, Jesse said to him. I don't, he didn't specifically say become a fighter. Jimmy had started doing some amateur Golden Glove things then, but he said he knew himself. Here's a, one of the greatest athletes ever. Set world records when he was still going college, and then of course Olympics, and basically didn't. as a runner you know forget about running and you're not going to you're not going to make any money there you know boxing's probably better for you and and it turned out to be when you talk about nowadays uh, uh jimmy's biggest purse was forty thousand dollars in 1951 when he fought joe lewis but uh he was fighting regularly and he was getting some decent purses and, and, he, and he was very frugal <laughs> in later years me and my then wife, he'd call up and say, hey, I got some to a clam bake, or I got some tickets to such and such. I want to be my guest. We'd go, and, and uh, I never told everybody when we'd get there. And they'd go, hey, by the way, Jimmy comped us. But people would say, oh, that Jimmy's so damn cheap. Well, what it was is he was frugal, not cheap. He ended up buying a house for his parents. He got a nice house for himself. Um, unfortunately, uh, he did lose a huge chunk uh, during a divorce, but but he was very smart with his money, you know, and uh, just a good guy. So he would give me, uh, he had scrapbooks that his mother and he had uh, two sisters would make, um, and, he, and he kept them. So he'd give me the scrapbooks. I would take them, and uh, they were falling apart. I would repair them. I would photocopy a lot of the important information. He had photos that I was able to copy, you know. Uh, so I did know a lot about him, and I would pick his brain, you know. Uh, I have a tape somewhere, on, you know, from a cassette tape. He was training a, a, a decent fighter named Ralph Moncrief, who fought for a long time. He wasn't a great fighter, but he was a decent fighter. In fact, he went over to South Africa and, and won two big victories over there against their best middleweights. But uh, he was training Ralph Moncrief, and we're at a gym and the bells ringing and, you know, all kinds of activity. You're hitting, ba bags are being hit and whatever, but I'm talking to Jimmy, you know, I'm asking him about, <laughs> I'm taping all this, about all the different fighters, you know. So he would tell me what what his opinion was of Archie Moore or Ezra Charles and, and, and Joe Lewis and different things. And he never had anything negative to say. He didn't say, you know, that guy was, you know, he could have too, because Archie Moore was running around with his wife and when they fought, 
1945 down to Cleveland Stadium, she was sitting ringside. They were still married. Uh, she was sitting ringside rooting for Archie. And uh, so Jimmy really took it to Archie. In fact, he knocked him down. And while, while Archie was on one knee, he cold cocked him with a left hook. And uh, Archie, um, the, the, the Cleveland Boxing Commission at the time didn't know what to do, I think. So they, they, they didn't disqualify Jimmy. They, they took away points and gave Archie the round, whatever. And a couple of rounds later, Archie got knocked down for like the fifth or sixth. Yeah, time. but Jerry, from reading that story there that you got in the book, it seems that Archie Moore was doing Jimmy a favor. Yeah, yeah, she turned out to be, you know. And there, here again, I, I I mentioned there, you know, I didn't expect Jimmy to, you know, start ranting and raving and calling her all kinds of names, but he basically just said she was something else. Well, she ended up being, yeah, you know, as the book in the chapter talking about a uh, a legal precedent about a search and seizure and she was she was a, a real nut job and plus involved with you know legal things drugs and gambling and whatever um but uh jimmy you know after a while because he'd like f forget something he wasn't very forgetful until the last couple of years of his life but he'd say go over and ask jerry he knows more about me than i do <laughs> and people would look at me like what because you know at that time i was only you know, I was only in my 20s, early 30s then, and you're like, well, how could he know more about you? He never saw you fight. Well, I didn't. I, you know, I've seen footage, and I talked to a, that's always been fun for me to go to um, one particular trip to L.A. I went to a boxing dinner that I was involved with, the, the former World Boxing Hall of Fame, and there was 28 champions there. And I managed to interview most all of them long enough to ask them a lot of personal questions about Especially, I really like the idea. Like, who was your toughest opponent? So you got a, you got a guy like Jimmy McLaren, and you think he'd say, uh, "Oh, Barney Ross, or or whatever." You know, some of the ones you're more familiar with, uh, Tony Canzanieri, or or you know, Kid Kaplan. No, he says the toughest guy I ever fought was Billy Patrol, the Fargo Express. That guy was something else. He should have been a champ. And Jimmy would say the same thing right away. You're you know. Uh, you're, you think he's going to say uh, Joe Lewis or or Ezra Charles, but you know he would he would come he would name some other fighters too that just you know gave him fits. And then uh, you know this this happened with uh, a lot of fighters I met, but but Jimmy was very honest about it. You know, I mean he never he made excuses. The one thing he didn't talk about, and I'm not even sure if he had if I would have really have done it in depth part of it in a chapter but basically i can say this now and it's true jimmy got drafted in uh, february of 1944 and so you know get the war the war was winding down quite a bit but it was still going on and he got stationed in texas now here again don't know the details this is you know not that it's great now all you have to do is turn on the, the news every day and we just had a terrible shooting in Akron, Ohio. But I can just imagine if Jimmy even showed the slightest cockiness when he was down there because, uh, you know, he was, at that stage, he was number one rated in, in the world. And, and, and for a period of time there in, in the end of 43, early 44, he was number one in the heavyweight and the, the light heavyweight division at the same time. But anyhow, long story short, these apparently these MPs who obviously were white 
beat the crap out of them. And I'm sure they used billy clubs and whatever. And I, and I don't know the exact details, but his sister, who took care of him in later years until she passed, said he was unconscious for like, it might have been more than a day. I mean, they really wiped him out. So he comes out of the army. And if you look at his early fights, in fact, that's when he knocked out Archie Moore. I mean, he, he was still going pretty strong in 45. But then he starts losing, you know, he lost three in a row. He lost to, you know, Ezra Charles. He lost to Lee Q. Murray. Trying to think. Oh, he, first he lost to Walcott on a, on a close decision. But his, she said his reflexes never were the same. But uh, his memory seemed to be fine to me. And, and when I watched the footage of the older fights, you know, wasn't his peak, but he still was slick. Uh, and I did know a lot about him. And uh, I, I considered it an honor that he would say that, you know. But when he was in the nursing home, when he was 91, coming on 92, and he was starting to really fade, somebody would come up to him. And apparently he wouldn't recognize him, you know. And, and apparently my name was in delved in it. It was in his brain. You say, who is that? Jerry Fish? And they go, no. No, it's so-and-so. So he would remember my name, you know, and when I did the book on him, he was starting to fade, but yet when I gave him a copy, my book on Jimmy, he just sat there just staring and going through the pictures. And I'm sure some of it, no no pun intended, rang a bell with him, but uh, I, was, I was honored. I, I knew him for more than 40 years. So if someone says, well, who was your favorite fighter? If you're talking about a fighter and a person and somebody I never saw actually fight live, uh, without a doubt, it'd be Jimmy. Uh, John talking the story about his dad and you talking about your dad. My dad, I can't come up with the same kind of story, but I will say I, I give my dad credit. My dad was not a big boxing fan by any stretch. Uh but when we got our first television, like in 1951, um, he would watch the Friday night fights and Wednesday night fights or whatever, you know, the, the Paps and the, and the Gillette. And it had to probably be a Friday night fight because uh, me being that young and being in school, I doubt I'd be up late watching fights. But my dad was watching a fight. And I believe Jimmy Bibbins was on television, televised fights eight or nine times. And I don't remember who he was fighting, but I remember my dad saying to me, and I'm just watching because, you know, it kind of mesmerized me, two guys beating the living tar out of each other. You know, what is this all about? And he says, you see that guy there? Which one? When Joe Lewis was in the Army, he was a heavyweight champ. He was recognized as a duration champ. I go, oh, really? You know, but uh, I, you know, obviously didn't really see much of that and, and remember much of that, but... Because of that, that kind of got me a little bit started. And my dad, who was not a boxing fan, in my latest book, I talk about the Cleveland Arena when it opened in 1937. The first three years, 37, 38, and 39, on the December Toy Fun show, Henry Armstrong was featured defending his welterweight title three years in a row and, and defended it you know, three times. My dad was at one of those fights. So he would say, Oh, man, I saw a perpetual motion. That guy was something else. So these little tidbits, not what you guys went through, but it did kind of give me a little opening, you know. But Jimmy Bivens was was fantastic. And then as I write in the chapter, as the years are going by, you know, 
with technology and other things, I, I found out a lot more things about him that probably would have included in the in the book on him. But hey, you know, at least I got a book out on him while he was alive. All right, guys, remember the grueling truth is powered by Betty.net, which is legal sports bookmaking, unlike Jimmy Bimmon's ex-wife. Uh, Betty.net is your best bet for finding the online casino or sports book that's right for you. Make sure you check them out at betting.net. All right, also, a few more rounds, John. You can find it on Amazon, correct? You can, and at Barnes & Noble. And Jerry and I were just talking about it this morning. We obviously, because, well, we're not because we're greedy. We just wish that more people would have read it because it hasn't sold as well as we hoped. But the flip side is it's got five stars, universally 18 reviews, and that, of course, makes us very happy. Not for our egos, but we, we really wanted to – uh, uh, entertain the people and give them some some poignant stories about fighters that we have talked to and, and hung out with. And like Jerry had Jimmy Bivens and I had Armando Muniz and that's in the story where you get to know these guys and they're great guys. You know, I, I don't think I met one fighter fighting that was a bad guy. I mean, they're just such nice people and they're so honest. Uh, hey, and we've talked about that before, John, where we both have had guys we couldn't stand when they fought, and then we finally talked to them, and we walk away thinking, how the hell could I have ever not liked them? Yeah, exactly, and they're not they, – some of them have one image and another, and, and um, they're, they're, they're just really down-to-earth people, and that's, that's what I really – uh, really like uh, about them. And, and, and that's really what it is with our, our, our book. It, it's an intimate look at some of the things in, in, in our boxing history. And, and real quick, that was with, with Jerry. You know, I, I, I picked up right away that in a lot of ways he was a kindred spirit. You know, he was going to Los Angeles. I was going to Los Angeles. Now, obviously, years later, we were doing different things. He did it in a, a more th uh, deeper way than I did, being involved in a lot of the events and a lot of things that I did a little bit later. But the love for the for boxing, he actually boxed. I don't know. I think he sparred more. I sparred once. I think Jerry. I had a I had a, a twelve amateur fights. Not not yeah, in the yes, he had twelve amateur not fights. Gloves, not in the golden gloves or anything. I, you know, but but actually bouts. You know, three round yeah, bouts. There you go. Enough to rattle my brain. Exactly. Yeah, that explains it, right? I want to say one other thing though, John. You know, uh, you, you know, we're talking about you know promoting our book. Uh, autographed copies can be obtained from both John and I yeah, going on Facebook with, with Messenger or, or our uh, email addresses, which are available. Um, the, the one thing I, John and I were talking about this this morning, you know, we just clicked on this. It, it was amazing. It's a, the beginning of the pandemic, and we literally put this book together in four months or less. Uh, it was, it was mind-boggling. I mean, just so much fun. He'd, he'd throw a chapter at me and I'd proof it and I'd throw a chapter at him. And we, uh, it really was something I had never dreamt of. You know, I was just, you know, amazing that it came together and, and the blend of the two things. And, and most of the comments we get from people, uh, depending on the age, you know, of like if, if somebody like Nigel Collins or, or uh, 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 some of the other ones like, oh, Mike Silver or uh, um, of course Russell Peltz that are basically my age, uh, you know, 75, 76 in that ballpark, uh, they gravitate to the older stories, of course, but but everybody has said, what a great blend of stories, you know, to 
usually a book like me, a lot of my books are basically about older fighters. And uh, John, of course, writes a lot of more current stuff. But to put them both together, I think that was the, the key. And regardless of how many we sell, I wouldn't trade this experience with John for anything. Yeah, exactly. I can tell you this. I, John sent me an autographed copy. But on my autographed copy, you probably can't see it. But, you know, Mike, this has pictures. So right there, <laughs> he took a shot at me while signing the book. <laughs> So it was kind of disturbing, but I think he just did that because, you know, I, I think a few more rounds or blood on my notebook. I don't think there was that many pictures. I really like there were none. You, you, you complained, chronically complained about that. So well, it's because you gave me Intimate Warfare, which is a hardback book. Yeah. that's awesome that I think you can buy on Amazon. And Ed Mulholland took all the pictures. So anytime yes. Ed's taking the pictures, the pictures are top notch. Exactly. Very true. Very true. All right, Jerry, we're going to have to have you come, come back sometime on our weekly boxing show when there's no live fights coming up. We can just sit here and talk about Cleveland boxing history or something. Great. Great. That'd know. be fun. I, I'd look forward to it. Because there hasn't been much Cleveland boxing history. No, history. no, not a, not really. You know, even, even some of the uh, decent fighters we've had have kind of moved on somewhere else. And, and, you know, they Especially since Don fights. Kang is no longer Oh, well, you know. Relevant. Let's not go there. <laughs> I, I will say this. I don't want to step on our promotion of our, our great book, you know, but my my uh, Cleveland Arena book, the, the arena closed in 1973. So the last chapter is all about Don Elbaum. Now, this is the kind of guy I, I really like, a kind of a meat and potatoes kind of promoter. He's a lot of funny stories about him, you know, about uh, owing money to this and staying in different hotel rooms because they hadn't paid the previous one. But this guy was a promoter and he wasn't some huckster. And, and, uh, you know, that, that's all I'm going to say. I mean, I, I, you know, I, uh, you mean he wasn't Don King, Jerry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. And yet Don King, both of them are 90 years old. I mean, it's like unbelievable, you know? Yeah. For some <laughs> reason, boxing promoters all live to be at least a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, right. Yeah. You know that's you know that's that song and the lyric only the good die young. That's what I always <laughs> think with Don Kane, but then you got guys like Don Elbaum and Russell Peltz who I actually like and yeah, did not really compute them. Uh, Russell Peltz is uh, I you know I, my, one of my regrets because I did travel to a lot of places to see fights. I saw fights in in Mexico. I saw fights all, in California, different places. Saw them in Toronto, Cleveland, New York, Miami. I never got to go to a Peltz fight in Philadelphia for, for whatever reasons, you know, and I, I, but I followed him and I knew him and uh, we've never physically met in person, but we've been in touch with, with each other for a long, long time. And, and uh, he's always been very fair to me and vice versa. I, I can't say enough good things about his yeah, career. We need to have him on the show, John. Oh, absolutely. I, I did set up to have, to interview him a few years ago, but something happened and we had to put it off and then we never oh. did. Go through. I, I think you should pursue that because he, he talk about so the blue horizon, right? Yeah. Oh my God. The blue horizon. I mean, that's incredible. You know, yeah. he, he was really something. And some of the stories, it's so great. I mean, you know, he, he, he's talking about, you know, hey, we made money on this fight. I cleared $40 when he was first starting out. You know, oh my God. To have the, you know, it's amazing, you know, that he, he, he stuck, stuck at it for so long. I mean, basically, he's, officially not retired now but he more or less is but in 50 years and his book is a, is a is a gem uh you know 
great title, you know, 30 Towers and I, what's it, 30 Towers, a cut eye, John? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. All right, John, tomorrow are we doing our regular weekly boxing show? Yeah, it just depends on the time. I can't do it at 9 a.m. because I'll be what on the What time you want to do it? I don't know, uh, 4 o'clock my time at 7 o'clock your time. Yeah, we can do that. And we will preview Derek Chisora and Kubrick Pulev. Isn't that this weekend? That is a classic fight right there. That's just like Bivens and Moore, I think. Well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, he says that stuff with a straight face. Did you see that, Jerry? I did not say that with a straight face. <laughs> he just fell off the camera. Didn't yeah, I know. Stuff. That's why this, I had to move my face so I'd see it. Also, I want to let everybody know that we will have our Boxing Legends show back on Monday. I'll be interviewing a former middleweight contender, Michael Basoka Lajade. So make sure you guys are here for that. Jerry, any final words? You want to plug any more books? Because... Well, yeah. I, okay, if you asked, I'll tell you. Do my, it. My Cleveland Arena, uh, the title book, my Cleveland Arena, Ohio's Professional Boxing Mecca, 1937 to 1973. It is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, uh, Arcadia Publishing, who published it. And, um, of course, I have copies for the sign, whatever. And uh, I think the best bet anybody that... Uh, would, would see this would you know it can reach me on just direct message me on at Jerry Fitch on Facebook I also have a my own website Cleveland boxing history all right John you want to plug away sure and by the way just a little plug for Jerry's book I read Cleveland arena because he just happened to send me a copy you know and um, while I was in the process of moving so I, I read it and trust me even though we are co-authors and we're friends, it is excellent. Are there pictures, John? Hundred and fifty. Just for you, the book. If there's pictures, yeah, hundred and fifty there for everybody. <laughs> These guys that can't read can enjoy it. Yeah, there are. I can yeah, read. I just now I as you get you, I, as you get older, the words are hard to see, Jerry. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you need there's bigger that. print. Yeah, so I, yeah, I like I, books uh, on Audible now. Yeah, really. Go ahead, John. But. Uh, yeah, Intimate Warfare, of course, is continuing to sell on Amazon, which, of course, it has to with those two guys, Gotti and Ward. I, I look back at that. What an experience with Dennis Taylor writing that. And then Blood on My Notebook is my baby, and that's the one Mike and I talk about because it's it's a lot of what I've done over the years, like Jerry did with his 50 years and 50 fighters and all that. Mine was more just my whole journey through writing the freakish nature that I even got involved with it. And then this this was really a good way with a, a third one to to talk more about the the, the intimate details of, of getting to know fighters and being friends with them and, and hanging out with them. I mean, I, I when you were talking about earlier, I, I my, my experience with Kareem Mayfield in the, in, the, in the film war, Mike, if you remember that one, when uh, when I got out of the car, and, and this is a flip side of the Muhammad Ali and everything side, when I got out of the car and was walking up the sidewalk, I was the one lone white guy, and there was about 40 black guys standing over there in the car, and they were looking at me like, Who's that? And I was thinking, I don't know. I'm just, and then Kareem showed up and he yelled out to them, you know, and he said, ah, John's with me. And I was like, because they didn't look happy. And then I was okay. Cause I was with Kareem, you know? So that's the kind of stuff. And, and, and Jerry with all his, one of his stories where he was going to, uh, I can't remember it exactly, Jerry, you were going to race 
you were thinking about, or some of you were going to race because you had a car with like a Hemi motor in it or something. And you were, Gary and I both like our hot sports cars too. So oh, that was Doyle Baird. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's what Baird, I mean. Yeah. We, yeah. We, Thank God we, there was nobody on the road that day, including cops, because we were nuts. I mean, we both had two big cars. One was, I was a big Buick with a 455 in it. And he had like a Olds or a, a Cadillac. It was bizarre. He had just knocked out Earl Johnson in the second round for Elbaum. And, uh, I only vaguely knew him then. I eventually got to know him very well. But hey, want to run? You know, kind of joking. You wind down the window. And two of them we go flying down like a couple of nuts. Yeah. Fun memory. That's what I mean. I mean, these are just fun, not just boxing so so much. It's just stories of our lives. So, yeah, they're all on Amazon. They're all available. And uh, Facebook is there, too. Jerry does that much better than I do. But if anybody wants a signed copy from us or whatever, just contact us and we'll get one out to you. Yeah. All right, guys. So definitely go check out a few more rounds with John Raspani and Jerry Fitch. Also, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. We have a new Twitter account up now. So we got to get our followers up since for some reason we lost our Twitter account before. But you can check us out. Our shows on just about anywhere you hear podcasts, including iHeartRadio, um, Spotify, you name it, we're there. I want to thank John and Jerry for coming in. Make sure you check out the Inside Boxing Weekly Show tomorrow night at 7 o'clock Eastern Time with me and John. But for now, for Jerry Fitch, John Responding, I'm Mike Goodpastor. You've been watching and listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legend 